Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. Before we get started, I just have a few notes about this podcast. It's an independent one-woman production, which means I depend on you to help keep the show up and running. And there are a few ways that you can help. You can leave a nice rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on. It gives us more visibility in order for new listeners to discover us. You can recommend us in true crime discussion groups and forums. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have an extra dollar to a month, you can join the show's Patreon. In doing so, you will gain access to dozens of full-length episodes that you won't hear anywhere else. And if a subscription isn't for you, but you would still like to help support, you can do so with a one-time donation through PayPal using the email californiapod at gmail.com. This week, I'd like to thank Rachel T., Carrie J., Camilla H., Megan, Lacey V., Mally G., Cordelia F., Fanny G., Daria L., and Jeff S. for either joining Patreon, raising their pledge, or donating through PayPal. All right, let's get started with today's episode. This is the second part of our episodes on the mysterious disappearance of seven-year-old Kyron Horman. So make sure before you listen to this that you go back to part one first. I took you through the timeline before Kyron went missing. I gave you some background information about his parents and his stepmom and how all that mess came to be. We got to the day of Kyron's disappearance, how the last confirmed sighting of him was on the morning of June 4th, 2010 at the science fair that was being held at his school. The PTA president saw him that morning around 8.15. His stepmom, Terry Horman, claimed that the last time she saw him was when she was about to leave the school and she walked him walk down the hallway towards his classroom at 8.45. We talked about what Terry did after she left the school, including the one and a half hours or so that she said she spent driving between 10 a.m. and 11.40 a.m., where she claimed that she was trying to soothe her 19-month-old using the motion of the car driving around. We ended part one criticizing everybody in Kyron's family for failing to show up for his talent show performance and how because Terry was allegedly supposed to be there to support him but didn't go, that she ended up going home instead, as did his father, Kane, where they remained until 330 when they went to the bus stop to supposedly meet Kyron, only to discover that not only did he not get on the bus, but he was marked absent from school that day. Terry and Kane rushed to the school to see if he was there, which really doesn't sit right with me because they were supposed to be at the school, not only for the talent show, but to also pick up his science project. Nobody was supposed to pick him up at the bus stop. So I left off asking, why did that happen? A school administrator ended up calling 911 and the search was launched more than seven hours after Kyron was last seen. Let's pick up the story from there. So once 911 was called, the search for Kyron began. 
However, not only did police lose precious hours in beginning the search for Chiron, because of the science fair, nobody was really checking who was coming and going from the campus. Anybody who wanted to come and view the science fair displays was welcome to come in, unlike the typical day when visitors have to check in and sign in with the office. The science fair was being held in the gymnasium. Whatever security measures are in place usually weren't in place on that morning. Gates and doors were open to the public. There were also no surveillance cameras installed on the campus at the time. So tracking down who visited the school that day would have been virtually impossible. Aside from Terry, there were a few select staff members at the school who recalled seeing Kyron just before Terry said she last saw him at 8.45. But after that, it was as if Kyron simply fell off the face of the earth. There has not been one single confirmed sighting of him, not one single trace of him ever found. Now, there is an issue. There are many issues, but there is one I'm going to address right now. And this one really is going to boil down to how something was actually said. The difference between a word or two and how it may have been interpreted. And it could be kind of damning for Terry. And it has to do with a doctor's appointment that Terry made for Kyron. The doctor's appointment that she mentioned to his teacher, allegedly, on the Friday that he vanished. Terry apparently said something to the effect that Kyron had a doctor appointment that day. And because of this, well, what she said was that he had a doctor appointment on Friday. And because of this, according to sources who spoke to the media outlet KPIC, Kyron's homeroom teacher did not expect him to be in class following the science fair and therefore marked him absent. These sources also said that Terry was vague about which Friday it was going to be. They said this later on. After Kyron went missing, it was then that Terry made the clarification that the doctor's appointment was made for the following Friday, June 11th. Here's the thing. The reports that I read on this stated that Terry said that Kyron had a doctor appointment on Friday, and she apparently said that the morning of the science fair to his teacher. And this is another thing that I'm not so sure I believe actually happened. For starters, we don't say that we have an appointment on Friday if we're making that statement on that Friday, the day of the appointment. We say we have an appointment today. Or we say we have an appointment this morning or this afternoon. If Terry said that and was being vague on purpose, the natural response to that statement, Kyron has an appointment on Friday, would be for the teacher to say, it is Friday, is it today? And then Terry would have to clarify. I find it somewhat difficult to believe that Terry told the teacher Kyron had an appointment on Friday and that the teacher accepted that without pointing out the fact that it was Friday. Another thing is parents usually don't tell teachers directly that their child will be having an absence. It goes through the office to make sure whether or not the absence is excused or unexcused. The administration handles all that stuff, as far as I know. You don't really see your kids' teachers all that much. The science fair was an exception. And because of that, I go back to the thing of this being 
a Friday and Terry saying, I have a doctor's appointment on Friday. And for the teacher not making that clarification or just assuming that she was speaking about that particular day. In addition to that, if we think Terry Horman has somehow managed to pull off the perfect crime here, which some people suspect that that's what's happening here, then why would she bring any kind of attention to the notion that she was planning on leaving the school that morning with Kyron? Okay, let me lay this all out. Say Terry had a plan to murder Kyron and hide his body someplace in parts unknown that morning. And she's got this whole entire scenario played out in her head. She's going to take Kane's truck so she would have room to transport him or his body. She's got a list of errands to run in order to establish an alibi. She was going to use the hustle and bustle of the science fair as the perfect cover for her to slip out of the school and off campus with Kyron and not one single person ever taking notice. And then she goes on for the next few hours going from place to place to place as if nothing in the world was amiss running her errands, attending to the sick baby, picking up a prescription, dropping off Kane's dry cleaning, going to the craft store, going to the gym, going home to get on the computer, establishing more alibis there. Why in the world would she blow her own cover by mentioning to the teacher that Kyron had a doctor appointment that day? That would absolutely place Kyron with Terry after 8.45 that morning. And it would be one massive slip up for an otherwise masterful plan. Am I right? If Terry is a criminal genius, like everyone apparently thinks that she is, she's not going to undo her entire elaborate scheme by telling his teacher that they're going to the doctor that day and she was going to leave campus that morning with him. If you think Terry is responsible for Kyron's disappearance, then you must think that Terry's whole entire ruse involving her showing up at the school and the science fair with Kyron has to be part of her plan. If she used the doctor's appointment as an excuse for his absence, then why bring him to the school in the first place? Why try to slip away undetected from the campus with so many visitors milling around? Why not just call the school, tell them that Kyron is going to be late, that he has a doctor's appointment, and then bring him to the school later? Remember, the science fair displays are staying up all day in order for the students to be able to see them at any point throughout the day. Terry didn't necessarily have to bring Kyron to school. I mean, why not just do this at home or get him in the car and go to that rural location? She didn't have to show up at school with Kyron that morning and she certainly didn't want anyone to know that she was leaving campus with him, especially if she was planning on doing him harm. That is literally collapsing her whole alibi if she did. And in addition to that, Terry would be setting herself up to need to show back up to school with Kyron at some point throughout the day because you don't pull your kid from the entire school day for one appointment. It doesn't make much sense for her to give the teachers the impression that Kyron would be returning to school later on that same day, knowing that his teachers would be expecting him, not only expecting him for class, but for that talent show too. Perhaps Kyron really wanted to go to the science fair that morning. He seemed really proud of his tree frog display. But damn it, that cuts into Tammy's murder plan. So what? She decided, what the heck? She'll just push the kidnapping and murder back an hour, hour and a half, to indulge this child with one more super fun thing 
before she snuffed him out and disappeared him forever? Whatever the case is, the fact still remains that nobody ever saw Terry leave the school with Kyron and nobody ever saw him with Terry at any of the various places that she stopped at that morning before going home. One last thing about the doctor's appointment before moving on. You know that the staff and Skyline Elementary, to an extent, dropped the ball on raising the alarm about Kyron being missing. Can we all agree on that? I don't know what it's like in other states, but I do know in California, I needed a damn good rock solid excuse if my kid wasn't going to be in school. If she was absent, I'd get voicemail messages from them. I would need to provide notices from doctors, appointments, etc., etc. I even got a call one time from the elementary school once after I had dropped my kid off. I just about had a heart attack until I found out it was a mix-up. I'd never want to receive a call from the school informing me that my child was absent when I know damn well I dropped her off. And that may have happened if they would have called and let people know that, hey, where's Kyron? He's absent from school today. The alarm would have been raised and this whole story may have gone very differently. Kyron had lots of parents at the time. My kid only had me and I always got the call when I kept her out of school for whatever reason. Once Kyron came up absent, the phone calls should have gone out to his contact list. The calls I received were computerized and auto-generated once the absence was entered into their system. And my kids started kindergarten in 2004. But maybe Kyron's school had an administrator in the office that was responsible for making actual phone calls that they came from a human being and not a computer. I don't know but no calls were made to any of Kyron's parents. Could it be because the first teacher who marked him absent mistakenly thought that he had a doctor's appointment? Perhaps, but what about the rest of the day? So what about any other teachers that Kyron had that also marked him absent? Calls still never went out. And then when a student signs up for an activity like a talent show, they usually fill out a form with all of their information and up-to-date emergency contacts. Then at the event, their teacher will have their clipboard with every child's information right there, just in case of an emergency. They don't have to go searching for contacts and phone numbers. When the school and the teachers and the kids and everybody were prepping for the talent show, Kyron was once again a no-show. This is an event that he spent time getting ready for and rehearsing for. His teachers must have known that he was excited and enthusiastic about it, yet still no call to any of Kyron's four parents. And precious hours were lost once again that could never be gotten back. There are theories posted out there online about how Terry could have done it if she murdered Kyron and hid his body. But there's nothing out there, no theories out there anywhere about what would have happened if the school did call Kyron's emergency contacts at some point that morning about his absence from school. One of those phones that would have been ringing that morning would have been Terry's. And she did not have her phone turned off. I mean, even dumbass Jody Arias had the sense to turn her phone off when she plotted Travis Alexander's murder, and that was a whole two years before Kyron went missing. So the idea is that Terry Horman decided to leave the school with Kyron, 
make herself seen all over town from 8.45 to 10.30, somehow without anybody seeing him. Then she purportedly is driving around aimlessly to comfort and soothe her sick child so she can try and make it to the gym that morning, but she never turns off her phone. She leaves herself open to not only being tracked, but to also possibly receiving a phone call from the school that Kyron was absent, which would mean that both Kane and Desiree might receive phone calls too. And that may have prompted them to start calling or texting Terry, initiating the search for Kyron much earlier. But also, it would be potentially interrupting Terry's alleged diabolical plan if she is doing what people think that she was doing, hiding Kyron's body. Getting the police out there right away, getting to Terry possibly before she got rid of him, if that's what she was up to on that aimless drive. Getting to her, getting to her car, getting dogs in there immediately to see if this woman was carrying around a dead body for two hours, as theories have alleged. If the school had made those calls, it could have made the difference between Terry having been cleared or Terry being made to be a murderer. But the school didn't, and that's on them. Even Kyron's friend, who has lunch with him every day, this little boy named Curtis, he knew that Kyron missed the whole day. But everybody kind of dropped the ball. Remember, if we believe Terry Horman had a hand in Kyron's disappearance, we have to believe that she did so on a school day that was full of activities on a day that she was expected to be at the school with Kyron for that talent show, on a day that she needed to pick up a prescription for her other kid that had apparently been pretty sick with an ear infection, on a day that she also remembered to bring along Kane's dry cleaning to be dropped off, on a day that she needed to go to the craft store, and on a day when she wanted to go work out at the gym and hang out with her gym friends. Or, as many people think, she picked that day to get rid of Kyron because it was busy and chaotic, and she had plenty of things to do in order to establish that alibi of hers. So dreamers, I'm not going to talk about the search that ensued following Kyron's disappearance. We know it was extensive. We know it was costly. We know it was the largest search effort in Oregon history, and we know it was futile, so I'm going to skip it. Within a half hour of the 911 call that was made to report Kyron missing, at 4.25 p.m., Kyron's biological mom, Desiree, is informed of him having gone missing. She immediately contacts Terry to get some information. By the time she hangs up, Desiree begins telling anybody who will listen that Terry is the one who caused Kyron's disappearance. Eight minutes later, by 4.33 p.m., both the police and the sheriff's department arrive at the school and at the Horman home. An hour later, a broadcast message was sent to all families who have children in the Portland School District that Kyron did not arrive at home. This went to every phone number of every parent and family in their system. So there is this thing that Terry did that people are crying foul about, and that's the fact that at 6.34 p.m., the evening of Kyron's disappearance, when the search for him was in full swing, with many people and both of the local law enforcement agencies out there frantically looking, Terry was logged into her Facebook playing a game called Treasure Isle. 
We know that police had descended on her home two hours earlier. We know that she has a 19-month-old to attend to, a 19-month-old that had been dealing with an ear infection. It's 6.30 in the evening. It's time to try and wind down, to try and wind the children down. It's dinner time. It's bath time. And soon, it's going to be bedtime. What's Terry supposed to be doing? Be at home with the baby, hysterical and crying, sobbing and freaking out while trying to take care of her child? Would that have been preferable? If witnesses had the chance to look in on Terry or be a fly on the wall when she's at home with her toddler, what if we did see her, inconsolable with tears streaming down her face, her panicking all over the house, would that have been better? No. Terry would have been criticized for acting like a hysterical madwoman in front of her child. We all do lame stuff to relieve stress. I play games on the iPad to help me relax at night. I also listen to murder podcasts to relax. I watch murder shows. I read murder books. All of these things soothe my soul. Why does playing Treasure Isle while taking care of her daughter make Terry out to be the worst human being on the planet? It doesn't. It makes her human. And honestly, if we found out that she was listening to or watching or reading murdery things, we'd all probably find that to be pretty normal as well, right? People just need to get out of here with that junk. My whole life fell apart in 2020. COVID was killing tens of thousands of people, and I sat my ass in my apartment and played color by number and home design games. And I still do, and it's relaxing as hell. I don't blame Terry for getting on her computer or her Facebook or whatever and playing a game. It's how we relax. It doesn't mean we don't give a shit about stuff. On the morning of Sunday, June 6, at 8.58 a.m., Terry posted to her Facebook that she ordered 1,000 missing persons flyers, that they are going to be delivered to her home, and that she would let everyone know when they got there so that they could pick them up to pass them out. However, by the morning of Wednesday, June 9th, Terry changed her Facebook settings to private. I imagine this is because she has become the target of online attacks and harassment as suspicion of her began to grow as soon as Kyron's mom started telling people 30 minutes after the initial 911 call was made about Kyron that she knows Terry had something to do with it. Personally, I think it was a huge misstep on Desiree's part to kick off that campaign against Terry so publicly because all it did was serve to distract. And then irrelevant things start happening, like people pointing to and complaining about Terry playing Facebook games. Pointing fingers at Terry 30 minutes into this case made it all about Terry. And look where it's gotten us today. No closer than we were 12 years ago. And as far as Terry going on to Facebook in the days following Kyron's disappearance and posting in her status that she was quote-unquote hitting the gym, yeah, that's kind of a stupid thing to post. It doesn't look great, but you know what? Kane went to the gym that day with her too. He just didn't post about it. So if the media is going to give Terry grief about going to the gym, give it to everybody equally. If nobody's willing to give him a hard time about hitting the gym too, then people need to just get over it and move on. So kind of an odd thing also happened on Wednesday, 
June 9th. At 11 that morning, a spokesperson with the FBI said that Kyron's family would not be speaking to the media because they do not believe it's in the best interest of finding Kyron. That, to me, makes no sense. There are families out there of missing persons who would kill to have the kinds of media coverage that Kyron was getting. One of the key things that families do is speak to the media, plead for help, plead for the return of their loved one, and they often try to speak directly to their loved one just in case they happen to get the message. They'll take as much media coverage as possible, but for whatever bizarre reason, the FBI came out with this statement, which would ultimately end up not being the case. An hour later, the sheriff's department read a statement from the Horman family that said in part, Kyron's family would like to thank people for their support and interest in finding their son. The outpouring of support and continued effort strengthens their hope. We need folks to continue to assist us in our goal. Please search your properties, cars, outbuildings, sheds, etc. Also check with neighbors and friends who might be on vacation or may need assistance in searching. There are a lot of resources here to help you search, so please don't stop. It is obviously a difficult time, and they want to speak to the public so you can hear it from Kyron's family as they come together to share their message. Their objective is to keep the focus on Kyron and not about anything else. And dreamers, that's exactly what I said would happen because of Desiree telling people immediately from the start that Terry was responsible for Kyron's disappearance. It shifted the focus from Kyron to Terry, especially in the media. And you know what? It never, ever stopped. Two days later, on Friday, June 11th at 1 p.m., Kyron's family did exactly what the FBI said the family wasn't going to do, and they spoke to the media at a scheduled press conference. All four of Kyron's parents, Kane and Terry, and Desiree and her husband, Kyron's stepdad, Tony Young, appeared together in a show of solidarity. Tony, speaking directly to Kyron, said that they all missed him, and they loved him and they needed him home. He also thanked the community and the volunteers for the outpouring of support. Kane also spoke, expressing his gratitude for the community and the search effort. Both Desiree and Terry remained silent. Two days later, on Sunday, June 13th, nine days after Kyron was last seen, the sheriff announced at a noon news briefing that the massive search effort for Kyron had come to an end and that the case had been elevated to a criminal investigation. The exhaustive search across 10 days involved more than 1,300 people from Oregon, California, and Washington, covering a two-mile radius around Skyline Elementary and sections of Savi Island, which is about six miles away from the school. However, divers were still seen wading in waist-high water near Savi Island the following day, Monday, June 14th. The next day, June 15th, was the last day of school for the 2009-2010 school year. The day after that, June 16th, is when Kyron's uncle, Christian Horman, was arrested on child sexual abuse charges, which we discussed earlier. On Friday, June 18th, the sheriff's office released a flyer asking students and their parents who were at the school on June 4th about that day. The flyer had pictures of Kyron, Terry, and Kane's truck 
that she was driving that morning. The sheriff announced that Kane and Desiree approved of the flyer, which indicated that the solidarity was now broken. Terry had officially become a suspect as far as the family is concerned. But that is not anything that the sheriff's department announced publicly. By this time, Terry had already been given a polygraph test. It was announced to the media that she had failed that test. And it's been reported that Terry expressed anger and disappointment that she failed it. She was given a second polygraph examination, which she reportedly failed again. Most of us who are true crime fans don't lend any credence or credibility to polygraph examinations. It's an investigative tool, and from my understanding, it serves more to exclude as opposed to include people as persons of interest. So if we are to give the polygraph that bit of credibility, then Terry's failing it only means that investigators may not want to stop looking into her just yet. But you know, when a case goes unsolved like this, when it goes cold, when it stays as mysterious as it did as the day it happened, then nobody is excluded. Not Terry, not Kane, not the registered sex offender who lived up the street. Nobody's been eliminated. On July 8, 2010, Kane and Desiree stood shoulder to shoulder while they called Terry out, which, again, I feel was a huge misstep on their part as they did further distract from the case. I couldn't help but feel that this had turned personal and Desiree in particular was bringing it to the world stage. She said at this news conference that she held with Kane that she knows Terry is lying and Kane announced on that day to the media that Terry had failed two polygraph tests. Desiree stated, I've known her for a long time and I know she's lying. And Kane chimed in, I think everyone knows that she took two polygraphs she has not passed those polygraphs. And then they went on to say that they both took the polygraph, that they both passed with flying colors, and that Terry is not cooperating with police. Um, if Terry's taken two polygraphs, that kind of means that she is cooperating with police. If she's failed, if she's decided to clam up or lawyer up, you know what? Good on her. That's exactly what everybody else in the world says that people should do. That is exactly what Desiree and Kane would do if the cloud of suspicion began hovering over them. If I were Terry and if my friends, family and the media and the court of public opinion began turning on me, I'd shut all of them out and lawyer up right away. No ifs, ands or buts about it. And really, it's the best thing Terry could have done. Because look at her now. She's still out there. She's still hated by everybody. But she's still not being charged with anything. Desiree stated in this press conference, Terry is not taking an active role in finding Kyron. I can't say it enough that Kyron is still out there and he needs to be home. And it's extremely frustrating that she's not cooperating. Unfortunately, I'm kind of at that point where I'm so angry, I don't even have words. And then Desiree tripled down on her previous pleas for Terry to do the right thing and to cooperate, to be honest, to get the truth out there. That same day, a judge unsealed a restraining order that Kane had against Terry. It was obtained because Kane expressed his belief that Terry was involved in Kyron's disappearance. 
I'm getting a little bit ahead here in the timeline, but I'll get back to all of this, how we got to the restraining order. He also cited the information that came out about Terry allegedly attempting to hire the landscaper to kill him. Kane said that he came to that conclusion after information he received from investigators about the case. The county prosecutor wrote a memo to the judge who issued the restraining order that he could no longer stand by the judge's decision to keep it sealed and that the major crimes team said that unsealing it would not undermine the ongoing criminal investigation. To me, I think the issuing of a restraining order with no grounds or evidence of any wrongdoing on Terry's part was unfair, and unsealing it and making it public based on everything that Kane wrote in it was even more unfair. It just feels like a whole bunch more distractions from a thing that has nothing to do with the investigation into Chiron. Okay, so I'm going to jump back in the timeline a little bit to go over some of the things that I just touched on. On Saturday, June 26, 2010, 22 days since Chiron was last seen, investigators from the Sheriff's Department requested that Kane come down to their headquarters to speak to them in person and specifically asked him to not bring Terry with him. Unbeknownst to Kane, they were in the process of trying to set Terry up by using an undercover officer. What was this all about? Well, remember earlier I mentioned that Terry allegedly attempted to hire her landscaper, Rudy Sanchez, to bump off Kane, right? Well, it turns out that a couple of weeks after Kyron went missing and the news broke, the landscaper all of a sudden decided to come forward with this damning allegation against Terry. I said earlier that I was suspicious of his timing. This is a thing that he claimed happened in January, some six months prior to Kyron having gone missing. So now the media is focused on Kyron and Terry, and it kind of sort of sounds like this guy is wanting to insert himself into this case to get his 15 minutes, joining in on the parade of people beating up Terry in the media. I'm not saying that that's this man's motivation. All I'm saying is that he should have legitimately come forward when it happened at the time, if it happened at all. And you know, if he had, if it was true, if he had done the right thing, if this actually happened, if Terry asked him to kill Kane, Kyron would probably be here today. So I am not a fan of this landscaper guy either. So the landscaper came forward somewhere between two to three weeks after Kyron went missing. He claimed that Terry hired him without telling Kane. Her official reason was because Kane wanted her son James to do the yard work. So she hired the landscaper to kind of take some of the pressure of the work off of her son. The speculation is Terry began having an affair with the landscaper. It doesn't seem like he told that to police, but what he did say is that in January of 2010, the two of them went out to dinner and it was there that she wanted him to kill Kane. She wanted him to make it appear to have been a mugging gone wrong and that Kane usually carried a lot of money with him, at least $10,000, that if he did it, he could keep the money and anything else Kane happened to be carrying with him at the time, his phone, his computer, whatever. Earlier, I mentioned that one of the reasons the landscaper gave as the reasoning behind the desire to have Kane killed was that Terry found out that he was having an affair with a co-worker. But I also read other reports that Terry told the landscaper that Kane abused her, that she found out 
he was going to file for divorce and that he had threatened to take full custody of their daughter. So she needed to get this done. I'm a little bit skeptical of that being the case because Kane, he's not a divorcer. He's a cheater. He likes to have his cake and he likes to eat it too. I don't see him initiating divorce. The only reason I think he did it in this case, him filing for divorce on Terry, is because uh, the whole world was watching the shit show that his marriage had become. Kane's a narcissist. He's going to do what looks best for himself. It was a few days after the landscaper told police about this that they made a couple of moves themselves. They requested Terry come in for a second polygraph, which she did and apparently failed. Again, I don't take polygraphs into consideration, and I believe it was something that Kane and Desiree should not have blabbed to the media to further their hate campaign against Terry. But another thing that the police were going to do was they were kind of sort of going to pull a Dahlia Dippolito setup on Terry. Not quite as elaborate, but they were going to try to catch her on audio plotting the murder for hire with the landscaper again. In order to pull that off, they needed Kane out of the house, which is why they contacted him on that Saturday, June 26th. They told him that they needed him to come down to the sheriff's office and to not bring Terry with them. Kane did as he was instructed, and when he arrived to speak to the sheriff's investigators, that's when they dropped all the bombs on him. That they had all that information that Terry was trying to have him killed, allegedly. That the landscaper said she approached him, asking him to do it. Kane also found out in this meeting that he had a landscaper and that they were sending the landscaper to their house wired up with an undercover officer posing as a hitman. Well, Terry Horman may be a lot of things, but stupid isn't really one of them. She smelled a rat right away. All of a sudden, Kane leaves the house, and what do you know, here comes Mr. Landscaper with Mr. Undercover Officer posing as the hitman for hire, the landscaper attempted to broker the deal. He's like, I got this hitman right here. If She still wants to do it. And he kept talking about the alleged conversation they had over dinner six months earlier. The sheriff's department has kept the exact exchange between Terry and the landscaper and the undercover officer close to the vest, but it did not go as planned. Terry didn't bite. To me, it was too little too late. If the landscaper was asked by Terry to kill Kane and to make it look like a mugging gone bad, he should have told the police right away, not two or three weeks after Kyron went missing. By that time, Terry had been under all kinds of scrutiny by Kane, Desiree, the police, the FBI, the media, and out of the blue, the landscaper shows up with a supposed hitman. Not only was this too little too late on the part of the landscaper, it was a stupid move on the part of whoever cooked up this undercover scheme to try to trap Terry into soliciting a murder. Terry knows that every single move she is making is being scrutinized, right down to what game she's playing on Facebook. I'm kind of baffled that law enforcement actually thought that they would get Terry to incriminate herself, much less actually hire the hitman that just randomly showed up at her front door. Anyway, the plan fell apart. Terry had her guard way up and she didn't say or do anything that even remotely came close to being any kind of crime. 
and to this day the claim that Terry tried to have Cain killed is completely unfounded. In a side note, there's been speculation that the landscaper may not have been approached at all, that he may have been recruited by police to try and entrap Terry into accepting an offer to have Cain killed, and that the landscaper was intimidated into doing so because he and his family were not citizens of this country. If, and that's a big if, there is any truth to that, then the plan is even stupider than I initially stated. But it would be this event that prompted Cain to move out on June 26th and to file for divorce and obtain that restraining order two days later on Monday, June 28th. Following the visit from the landscaper and his supposed hitman for hire, Terry made a series of 911 calls that afternoon and evening. The first one came in at 5.16 p.m., and the call was considered to be a threat. A deputy responded to her house. She related to the officer that someone in a truck was quote-unquote threatening her. The name of the landscaper, Rudy Sanchez, and the license plate on his truck went out over the radio as the person that Terry attempted to hire to kill her husband. Her call to 911 to report this threat was therefore disregarded. They all knew what was going on with that landscaper. They're the ones that set up this meeting in the first place with Terry. Seven minutes later at 5.23 p.m., Terry made a second 911 call, but this time she reported that a man in a white truck was demanding $10,000 from her. She provided no other details or explanations as to why this man was demanding the money. Of course, again, police are aware of the man that came to her house since they were the ones to arrange for him to go there and he was wearing a wire. They've got eyes and ears all over the house at that point in time. They were hoping to catch Terry hiring the hitman or at the very least making incriminating statements, but she quickly shut down the conversation and immediately called 911 to report this as a threat. When that didn't go as planned, Terry called again and reported this as an extortion. And by that time, according to sources, and I don't know if this is what actually happened, but apparently this is when it was decided to let Terry know that she's come under suspicion in Kyron's disappearance. The sting operation was a fail, which is what caused Terry to start calling 911 to make these complaints. But whatever the case was, Terry had had enough and immediately retained an attorney. At 11.39 p.m. that same night, Terry called 911 for a third time. This one went out as a custody issue call. It was prompted by Terry realizing that Kane had left the home with baby Kiara and had no intentions of coming back. She related to police that Kane packed some things and left with her daughter about 10 hours earlier and she really wanted to know what she could do about it to find out if he could legally leave the home with their child like that against her wishes. The deputies came to her house again, but found no reason for this to be treated as an emergency. No problems with Kane taking the baby, but the call was transferred over to the investigators working on Kyron's case. Of course, law enforcement were the ones who told Kane to leave the home and take the baby with him for their safety since they had become aware of this alleged hitman-for-hire plot. 
So if Cain was doing something that he wasn't supposed to be doing by taking the baby out of the home, they weren't going to do anything about it. On Monday, June 28, 2010, 24 days after Kyron disappeared, Kane Harmon filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences, and that was also the day that he obtained that restraining order. On Saturday, June 26, he had moved out, taking the baby with him. This was the day that Terry took and failed the second polygraph test. A little less than two hours after that failed polygraph, detectives informed Kane that Terry had hired that landscaper, unbeknownst to him, and that this landscaper admitted to police that he was offered a large amount of money by Terry to murder Kane because Terry found out Kane was having an affair. They apparently suggested to Kane that he take Kiara, remove himself from the home, and this was a warning that Kane hated. The theory has been floated that Terry harmed Kyron as an act of revenge against Kane for his affairs. While that's not totally unheard of, it is highly speculative because the truth is, there is very little out there about anybody who could truly point to as an actual motive. Why would Terry want to do something like this? Why would she want to harm Kyron on purpose? Could it be retaliation against Kane? Sure, it's possible. But I'd sooner believe that it had more to do with her own postpartum depression. It might have been something that she did to him that was spontaneous and unplanned, like she got mad all of a sudden and hauled off and hit him. Either way, it's all conjecture, and none of this means that Terry did anything to harm Kyron or cause his disappearance, because there's just no proof. Kane also stated that he wanted Terry removed from the house so that he would be able to move back in and provide a stable home for his daughter. He also wanted to be in the home in the event Kyron was located so that he could come back to his own house. An eviction hearing was set for July 22nd, but Terry ended up moving out voluntarily on June 17th. So here's another example of Terry kind of being cooperative. At that press conference I mentioned earlier that Desiree and Kane had held, they were asked if there was anybody else who could be involved in Kyron's disappearance, and all they said was that they could not speculate on that, but then they were willing to speculate on Terry being involved all over the media, right? Because speculating on alternative suspects would distract from Desiree and Kane's own personal investigation into Terry, and... They couldn't possibly have that because they wanted everybody and everything possible focused in on Terry and nobody else. By Monday, June 28, 2010, Kyron's story had gone nationwide. It's reported that Terry had been grilled by police multiple times for no less than six hours at a time. The truck that she was driving the day Kyron vanished was searched twice but there was nothing that linked Terry or the truck to whatever may have happened to Kyron. Absolutely no evidence to be found whatsoever. It's reported in the media that Kane moved out of the family home and took their 19-month-old daughter, but Terry made a statement to a reporter denying that Kane moved out, indicating that everything was good and it's just a rumor. Later that afternoon, Kane, Desiree, and her current husband, Tony, 
released a statement to the media indicating that they were continuing to cooperate with law enforcement and the investigation into Kyron's disappearance. Terry's name is noticeably absent from the press release, and she stated that she does not know why her name had been omitted from the joint statement. After all, for the most part, up to that point where she allegedly failed the second polygraph test and they tried to catch her making incriminating statements using that undercover police officer, Terry had been cooperative. I mean, was she always telling the truth? Likely not. But you know what? She's no more of a liar than Kane is. So in short order, the media catches wind and reports that Terry had been served with a petition for divorce along with a restraining order, and the following day, a judge sealed that restraining order. On June 8th, Kane obtained the petition to have Terry removed from the family home so he could return with Kiara, but she ended up moving out on the 17th. By July 10th, investigators were fairly certain that Terry knew more than she was letting on about what happened to Kyron. But they also think that there is at least one other person who has information about his disappearance too. The following day, on Monday, July 11th, Kane filed a motion to have Terry held in contempt of court for violating the terms of the restraining order. In this motion, Kane claimed that Terry showed the restraining order to a man named Michael Cook. The order had been sealed by a judge, so nobody was supposed to be seeing these court documents. And Michael Cook was a friend of Kane's from high school. The motion also stated that Michael took a picture of the documents, which contained the address where Kane was staying with Kiara, and that he Googled directions to that address on his phone. Now, I'm not saying what Michael Cook did was right, but I'm bothered by what Kane included next in his filing because it serves no purpose whatsoever when it comes to the claims of contempt. It's salacious, it's incendiary, and it only serves to further drag Terry publicly because all of this stuff would eventually get reported to the media. The way that all played out, I mean, I'm not the biggest Terry Horman fan in the world, but looking back at this 12 years later, it's really painful to watch all of this crap unfold and for her to get pummeled like this, especially when she's being accused of doing things in her private life that Kane Horman is absolutely not innocent of either. The judge ended up unsealing the restraining order anyway, and the contempt of court charge against Terry was eventually dropped, and then all that stuff that he put in his filing was made public. According to an article on thecolumbian.com, it said that Kane asked for Terry to be held in contempt of court for showing the previously sealed restraining order documents to an alleged lover. That this motion he's filed is the latest in a twist of more than a month-long investigation that has focused solely on the actions of Terry. That's not my words. That's what's said in the Colombian article. The documents have since been unsealed, in which Kane stated he believed Terry was involved in Kyron's disappearance and that she plotted to have him killed earlier in the year. Not Kyron, but Kane. In the new contempt motion, Kane accused Terry of sharing the documents, quote, with a man she had begun having a sexual affair with after Kane Horman moved out of the house 
Michael Cook. In Kane's filing, it included explicit details about hundreds of text messages between Terry and Michael, as well as numerous pictures of Terry in various stages of undress and graphic sexual activity. It also stated that Terry made the same sexual overtures to Michael Cook that she did to the landscaper that she attempted to hire to kill Kane, which is highly speculative to be putting into a court filing, if you ask me. The filing asked for Terry to be fined and jailed for showing the documents to Michael. I'm sorry, but a sexual affair? And all I have to say about that is that that's crap. I've listened to podcasts about this junk between Michael Cook and Terry. And to be honest, dreamers, I don't give a rat's ass about Terry's sexting or Terry's so-called affairs, if you can even call it that. I don't care. Kane is one to be talking about somebody else having an affair. Mr. Cheats on every wife when she gets pregnant. It's like, whatever, dude. So she had revenge sex with one of your friends. I don't care that she did it. In fact, more power to her. And it doesn't belong in a contempt of court motion. If he wants to air dirty laundry, he needs to start with his own. Unless you can sit there and tell me that you've lived a completely, totally virtuous, lily white life, then just no. He needs to stop. And then, dreamers, I know that we don't like Terry Horman. But just for a second, put yourself in her shoes. Your husband has left you. He's filed for a divorce. He's taken your kid. He's had you served with papers and a restraining order. You're removed from your home. You're being vilified in the media. You've become this personification of the evil stepmother trope when there's really no proof of any wrongdoing. Your whole life is falling apart. And so there's this one guy who comes along that gives you attention and a much needed distraction from the shit show that your life has suddenly become. And you know what else? What if Terry did do something to harm Kyron? Well then, her having a sexual relationship in the midst of all this is probably the least of her problems and it's nobody else's business. The media has framed this as an affair, as if it's some sort of inappropriate relationship. If they really want to scoop on affairs and inappropriate relationships, they should turn their attention to Kane, Like, for real. There has been this mess in the media also about Terry asking the receptionist at the gym to let her know if Kane showed up to work out. If he were there to bring Kiara at, to the daycare, she wanted to be called. In this filing, Kane also said that on the same day Terry Horman was served with the restraining order, but it was before she was served, she showed up at the gym where he works out. She works out there too, okay? Kane said that Terry asked the clerk at the gym to let her know if he showed up with the baby. The clerk then goes and tells the manager about Terry's visit to the gym and the manager calls the police. Kane stated that Terry was attempting to abduct Kiara. Excuse me, but this was before a restraining order was granted. And Kiara is just as much Terry's daughter as she is Kane's. He did the exact same thing by taking the child from the home to an undisclosed location, keeping her from her mother 
and it is not possible to kidnap her own child when there's no court order in effect, and there was not at the time that Terry did that. There was absolutely no court order barring her from having her child. And unless the daycare was provided with a court order stating that Terry was prohibited from taking the child, they're the ones technically in the wrong for contacting police with a frivolous call that was most likely prompted because of all the media circus. An episode of Dateline aired on July 12, 2010, in which Kyron's mom, Desiree, stated that she was now realizing that there were warning signs that Kyron was not happy living with Terry and Kane, and that her husband, Tony, stated that he has no doubt that Terry was responsible. And you know what? It's going to come up again later on. The things that Desiree has to say about how miserable Kyron was living with his dad and his stepmom. And I hate to even say this, but it's been mentioned even in our Facebook group. If Kyron was so unhappy, then why didn't Desiree step in? We'll touch on that a little bit later. Earlier, I mentioned Dee Dee Spicer. I may have mentioned her in the first episode. We discussed how she was a friend of Terry's who on the day Kyron disappeared was hired to do some gardening work at someone's home, but apparently went inexplicably missing during a time that in part overlapped with the time Terry was allegedly driving around with Kiara in her vehicle to soothe her to sleep while her ear infection medication kicked in. The insinuation here being that Dee Dee was in the know about what was happening to Kyron, that she potentially even helped Terry with whatever it was that happened to him, none of which has ever been proven or substantiated. Dee Dee used to work out at the gym with Terry, and in the wake of Kyron's disappearance, she remained one of Terry's very, very few supporters. Because she had been in close contact with Terry, even having gone to stay with her for about a week and a half following Kane's filing for divorce, she is considered to be a potentially pivotal witness in this case. To an extent, Dee Dee was cooperative with police and their investigation once she was brought up as potentially having useful information related to Kyron's case. She voluntarily allowed police to search her home and her car and spent hours answering investigators' questions. Though Dee Dee did state later on in an interview that she believed based on the manner in which she was being asked the same questions over and over again, she believed that they were attempting to get her to somehow change or shift her answers into something that they wanted to hear. That they were putting a tremendous amount of pressure on her to try and say things that would potentially implicate Terry in any wrongdoing. Dee Dee and Terry do find out that both of their cell phones were being monitored by law enforcement, so Dee Dee purchased two burner cell phones for them to use instead. The optics of this did not bode well for Terry in the media. For me, it's neither here nor there. If any of us were in that situation, could we really say for sure that we wouldn't consider doing the exact same thing? Of course, Kane and Desiree have their two cents to throw in with the media by saying that Dee Dee is doing and saying things, giving Terry advice that is not in the best interest of their son. Well, 
I hate to point out the obvious again, but I don't think either one of them had always acted in the best interest of their son either. I mentioned earlier that Dee Dee was deposed in a wrongful death lawsuit that Desiree filed against Terry in 2012. The media had a field day with the fact that Dee Dee took the fifth on every question that she was asked. And that's a right that everybody in this country has. But the public felt that there is no reason to plead the fifth in a missing persons case if you've truly done nothing wrong. Here's the thing. I tend to think Desiree jumped the gun on filing this wrongful death lawsuit two years after Kyron went missing, seeking $10 million in damages. As there's no proof out there that he's dead or that Terry had anything to do with it. Whatever the case, Desiree filed a lawsuit. She was seeking millions of dollars, likely hoping to get some answers as to what happened to Kyron. And since there was no criminal case against Dee Dee or Terry pending, with there still being so much uncertainty as to what was going to happen in the future, I really don't have a problem with Dee Dee pleading the fifth. She's protecting herself because she and or Terry could be slapped with criminal charges at any moment. Anything she says in a deposition could very much be used against her. Again, the optics are not great, but it's still proof of nothing. Dee Dee, for the most part, has been unofficially cleared by law enforcement. She's reportedly passed a polygraph. She has an immunity deal in place should anything ever come up in the future. Desiree eventually dropped her lawsuit, stating that she didn't want to interfere with a criminal investigation. Well, if not interfering with a criminal investigation was her goal, she's been failing a lot. In November of 2010, Desiree went on the Today Show to talk about some emails that Terry sent to friends that allegedly placed the blame for her failed marriage to Kane on Kyron. Desiree said that the emails were shown to her by police, that they were explosive, and after she saw them, she knew without a shadow of a doubt that not only was Terry capable of harming Kyron, that it was obvious that she definitely could have hurt him in the worst way imaginable. She could not talk specifics about the emails other than that Terry said horrible things and horrible words that expressed a severe hatred for Kyron. In the same interview, Desiree also began blaming Kane for not telling her that Terry had a drinking problem and that she couldn't continue standing by him throughout this ordeal, that he had plenty of time to let her know what was going on and he chose not to. Desiree claimed that she tried for a year to gain custody of Kyron, but Kane wouldn't allow it, which I'm not 100% sure that I totally buy because it isn't up to Kane. It would be up to the court if Desiree went through the process of filing for custody. Desiree also made the claim that Terry called her several times on the phone, urging her to take Kyron to go and live with her because he was so upset about having to live with her and his dad. Desiree claimed that Kyron had problems in school, that he was upset and sad all the time, and that many times he asked his mom if he could come live with her. In these emails, Terry allegedly also blamed Cain for her older son being sent to live with her parents, that Cain was domineering and overbearing, and that the whole vibe in the household was hostile. Again, none of this is incriminating to me, and if anything, it kind of sounds like a scorned woman venting. 
And to me, honestly, it seems like every single thing that happened leading up to all this had very much to do with Kane's philandering. Not that Terry isn't guilty of the same thing, but clearly she had a much different and a much more intense reaction to it. Desiree spent most of 2011 spearheading a public campaign against Terry, taking every opportunity that she had to accuse Terry of causing Kyron's disappearance. In a press conference in February that was held near Terry's place of residence, Desiree said, Kyron's story is not one of a child that wandered away from his school or was abducted by a stranger. It was somebody who was brought into our family. There was one person that knows where he is. Terry Horman, where is Kyron? All I have to say to that is that it has never been ruled out of the realm of possibility that Kyron was abducted by a stranger. We don't know that to be a fact because we don't know what happened to Kyron. Desiree posted missing persons flyers in the area surrounding Terry's home. She went to Terry's neighbors' houses, encouraging them to grill Terry about Kyron. She told the neighbors that Terry blamed Kyron for her failed marriage and that she hated him. It was in 2012 that Desiree filed her civil lawsuit against Terry, but ended up dropping it a year later. In November of 2013, Desiree organized a demonstration outside of Terry's home, which caused her parents to contact police who broke the demonstration up. In December of 2013, Terry and Kane's divorce was finalized, but the issue of custody over Kiara still needed to be resolved. Terry, at that point, had not seen Kiara in almost two and a half years. In June of 2014, Kane was granted full custody of Kiara, who was by then five years old. Terry would be able to have supervised visitation once Kiara was given counseling in order to help bridge a relationship with Terry. In August of 2014, Terry filed a petition with a court to have her name legally changed to Claire Stella Sullivan. Her request was denied. In December of 2014, Terry was hired as a mental health support specialist at a residential care facility for adults struggling with mental illness. The facility acknowledged that they were aware of Terry's connection to the Kyron Horman case, but indicated that she was hired because of her skills and training. In February of 2015, Terry filed a petition for a temporary protective order against a woman named Stacy Green, who she claimed had been harassing and stalking her obsessively. Terry expressed her belief to the court that their behaviors were escalating and that she feared for her safety. Terry's request was denied. Shortly thereafter, Terry quit her job at the mental health care facility, citing the denial of her request for a temporary restraining order being the reason for her departure. I feel that all this stuff, the denial of the request for a name change, the denial of the restraining order, are kind of like petty moves on the part of the court to continue to try and make Terry's life as miserable as possible. When it's not the court's place to be doing that, it looks like Terry's trying to get back to some semblance of a normal life. She's got to live. She's got to pay child support. If the court is going to stand in Terry's way from earning a living, they're not only harming her, but they're financially harming her child. And it's like they're forcing Terry into a more vulnerable and desperate situation 
for what purpose? When she's still technically innocent of any wrongdoing when it comes to Chiron. Does Terry deserve this? That's a matter of opinion. Is it fair? I don't think it is. In 2016, Terry began speaking publicly to the media about Chiron's case, including going on Inside Edition, talking to People Magazine, and talking to Dr. Phil. Terry basically defends herself. She denied that she had anything to do with Chiron's disappearance, that she loved her stepson, that she wanted to start speaking to the media finally because it did not seem like the investigation into Chiron's case is having any movement and that she's doing this because she wants nothing more than to see him come home. When she went on Dr. Phil, it was a lot of the same, but he also grilled her about her behavior in the wake of Kyron having gone missing, particularly the sexting with Michael Cook, sending nudes. He also grilled her about the failed polygraphs. As we all know, Dr. Phil is a strong believer in the power of the polygraph. Terry insisted that she did nothing to harm Chiron, that she isn't the monster that the media has made her out to be. She admitted that her marriage to Cain was troubled, that she was unhappy, but then she said they didn't fight, which I don't really believe for a minute. She denied the accusation that she tried to hire a hitman to have Cain killed, also a thing that has been and continues to be unsubstantiated. Dr. Phil called her sexting with Michael Cook and the graphic nature of her text messages as being really odd demeanor and conduct for someone that is grieving or worried about someone being missing. I've already talked about how I feel about the sexting, but she said on Dr. Phil exactly what I said that it was. Revenge on Kane for him doing the same things. Dr. Phil asked her about the polygraphs and her refusal to cooperate any longer with law enforcement, but that's just what people in situations like Terry's are told to do. Shut up and get a lawyer. There's nothing wrong with that, but it sounds wrong when you call it refusal to cooperate. According to KOIN.com, after Desiree saw the full interview that Dr. Phil had with Terry, she released the statement. As always, I am sure she's trying to deflect the public from thinking that she did it. This is one of her many attempts to divert attention from the real basic truth that we all know. Regardless, the bottom line is that Terry still hasn't cleared herself with law enforcement. She has cleared herself, whether you're talking about her timeline, her actions that day, the multiple lies slash versions of her story, or her whereabouts for two hours. By the way, it was less than an hour and a half. But, you know, two hours just sounds more nefarious, right? The statement continued. The basic fact is that Kyron left with her from the school that day. Another fact that she is pinged at a location that she can't answer for. She is still not cleared by law enforcement. Yet she has the audacity to go on Dr. Phil and make up whatever story she wants to fabricate when there is no one there, Kane, I, or police, to contradict her story or provide evidence that actually proves she is lying. It is all very easy when you're sitting in front of someone that doesn't know the truth, that doesn't know the scam or the game that she's playing. To me, 
I don't think that there is much out there in the way of real and actual proof that Terry was ever caught lying about anything pertinent to the case. Her story about her timeline on the morning of June 4th, 2010 has pretty much stayed consistent since day one. She gave her whereabouts. She was seen at various locations by witnesses and on surveillance. She had receipts at the various stores that she went to, and there is nobody who ever saw Terry leave the school with Kyron or saw him with her at any of the locations. Desiree stated that Terry is trying to divert attention from the truth, when really, Dr. Phil pretty much diverted from anything related to the case or the truth, especially when he focused in and grilled her on the sexting, a thing that Terry has never denied and explained that it came from a place of anger and hurt, and I believe also from loneliness and the need for her attention. Terry is the one who gets dragged for that, but what about the guy on the other end of the sexting, Michael Cook? He's all but forgotten in all of this. What about Kane's indiscretions? Everybody in this case, Terry, Kane, and Desiree, they're all people who have behaved inappropriately in various ways before, during, and since this whole mess began. But Terry is the only one who gets beat up in the media. Terry has no obligation to sit and interview and be confronted by Kane or Desiree. And it is not easy to sit on the Dr. Phil show and have your personal life put on display for the whole world to see. As far as Terry's claims about the cell phone ping locations, I already went through that. While Desiree may think Terry has audacity to go on Dr. Phil, it also takes some audacity to continually make accusations against someone without any evidence to prove it. With all the things Desiree had done over the years, Terry probably had a case to get an injunction against her to get her to stop. But the way things had been going for Terry, she'd probably get denied. And then she would look bad all over again in the media for trying to go up against Desiree in court. Shortly after taping her episode with Dr. Phil, Terry was arrested in California for allegedly stealing a gun from her roommate. That's what one article said, but I'll clarify that in a minute. She was taken into the Yuba County Jail on July 4th, 2016, and posted bail shortly thereafter. Then, several months later, just before Christmas, Terry was pulled over again and arrested for driving a car that had been reported stolen near San Francisco. She was taken into the Marin County Jail and posted bail again. Desiree, once again, brought her opinions to the media, stating that all of this is happening because of Terry's nature as a criminal the criminal that we all know that she is. Desiree brought up Terry going on Dr. Phil again and how she lied about everything and provides absolutely no help at all. And then Desiree expresses her hopes that these arrests will help lead to Kyron, but also feels that Terry is an imminent threat to the public and to the community. And unless she gets sent to prison, she's going to end up hurting more people. Terry went on to continue to face that stolen weapon charge it was tied in with a domestic abuse charge in Yuba County, but the stolen vehicle charge was eventually dropped. I believe the weapon charge and the domestic abuse charge were one and the same. I believe the roommate that was referred to may have been somebody that Terry was in a relationship with. Then on March 17, 2018, Terry got remarried in Clark County, Nevada to a man named Jose Martinez. And that's basically all I have when it comes to 
what Terry's up to and where she's at today. I have a problem with every single parent in this case, with the exception of Kyron's stepdad. I think all three of them are lacking when it comes to honesty and integrity, when it comes to owning and taking responsibility for their own actions. All of them have issues, and it seems like each one of them is prepared to drag one another whenever it suits their purposes. I personally don't like the way any of them behaved either publicly or privately. Did Terry do this? Is Terry responsible for Kyron having gone missing? I have to admit that through the years, based on the things that I would see and hear reported on in the news and on social media, that I believed that Terry Horman had something to do with Kyron's disappearance. After I've taken a closer look at the case, my opinion hasn't changed. I believe Terry is responsible. I do believe the media has been unfairly biased against Terry. I think much of her behavior over the years has distracted from the case and caused it to go unsolved. I believe both Kane and Desiree played into that as well, though. They worked so hard trying to smear Terry's character and reputation that nobody ever focused on the very strong circumstantial evidence that pointed directly at Terry as being responsible. For me, the most damning piece of circumstantial evidence that points to Terry and could quite possibly, to some extent, point to Kane as well, is that talent show. I've gone over it numerous times. Kyron was slated to perform at that show, yet nobody showed up for it. People said that Terry was the one who always went to these activities at Kyron's school, that she was the parent who showed up who was present, who volunteered. But then they would say in the same breath that the woman never posted pictures of Kyron. Then all of a sudden, on the day that he goes missing, there she goes posting pictures, insinuating that she's doing that as a part of her cover-up. When that talent show started at 1 p.m., Terry was supposed to be in the audience supporting him, but she wasn't. She left the gym at 12.40, 20 minutes before it started. And then she logged into her computer at 1.21 p.m. She was at home uploading the pictures of Kyron from the science fair. Why was she not at the talent show? I believe it's because she knew he was gone. And I believe she forgot about the talent show. And she forgot about picking up the science fair project. And instead decided that her alibi would be going to the bus stop with Kane and making that the moment when everyone realized that Kyron was missing. But you know what? Nowhere in all of the online articles that I've searched and read through, in none of the interviews that Terry began to give in 2016, in none of the outrageous statements that Desiree Young has made publicly about Terry, nowhere does anybody ask, why didn't she go to the talent show performance? Nobody has ever asked Kane. Why didn't he get off work an hour early to go support his own son at his talent show? And nobody ever asked Desiree, why couldn't she be bothered to show up on a Friday at the end of the school year for her own son's talent show performance? Yet Desiree will sit there and be the first one to say how much Terry hated Kyron, how much Terry blamed Kyron for her own misery, how sad and distraught Kyron was at school and at home, 
how much he begged to come live with her. Yet Terry was the one who was assigned the duty of being Kyron's cheerleader at school and his activities and at his performances. It just leaves me shaking my head, wondering what the hell is wrong with all of these people? And what is wrong with the media? What the fuck is wrong with Dr. Phil? What's wrong with police? Why didn't anybody press anyone about why nobody showed up for Kyron? This has been eating away at me ever since I realized that there wasn't just a science fair that day that Kyron had a performance. Kyron planned for that. He worked on it. He rehearsed for it. And nobody showed up. His parents should have been there, all of them, front and center. That's why they do these things on Fridays in the afternoon, just so families can be there. It's June. People are taking all kinds of time off of work to show up for things at the end of the school years for graduations and things like that. But no. Everybody decided to be so focused on the other irrelevant bullshit, like Terry playing Facebook games or going to the gym or sexting with Kane's high school buddy. And I mean everybody, the police, the FBI, Kane, Desiree, the public, the community, the media, Dr. Phil, everybody was so busy with everything else that they failed to see the obvious, that Terry didn't show up. She didn't show up at the school that afternoon. She didn't show up for the talent show. She didn't show up to pick up a science fair project. And that's because she was setting herself up to walk to the bus stop with Kate and Kiara instead and making that the aha moment. And it does still bother me that Kane went along with it because he knew about the activities at the school and made no attempt to go or inquire with Terry as to why she wasn't going. All of that is suspicious to me more than anything else that Terry did since the day this story broke. I do believe Terry did it, but how did she do it? I don't know. If she planned this, she picked one of the busiest days of the school year to do it, and she left very little in the way of time for her to be able to get away with it. She didn't even turn off her cell phone. But sometimes things just happen in exactly the right way in order for someone to be able to pull off the perfect crime. It was just the right moment when everybody happened to not be paying attention. Everybody was looking the other way and everybody was focused on other things. I'm not hung up on anything else in this case other than that talent show. Everything else that Terry said that she was supposed to do that day, she did. I'm not hung up on Dee Dee Spicer either. I'm not hung up on Salvi Island. I'm not hung up on the time that she spent supposedly driving Kiara around for an hour and a half. I'm hung up on what Terry didn't do. She didn't go back to the school when she was supposed to. She didn't go to the talent show. She didn't pick up the science for project. And I believe the reason why she didn't do those things because she knew she had no reason to. She had no reason to show back up at the school because I think she knew Kyron wouldn't be there. He wasn't going to do his performance. He wasn't going to need to take his project home. And he wasn't ever going to need a ride home from school again. And while I have no idea why he would want to have anything to do with this, I can't help but think that at some point in time, 
Kane was in the know too. He should have known about Kyron's talent show. He clearly knew that Terry was going to need to pick up his science project because they swapped vehicles that morning. Terry didn't pick it up that morning because the displays were going to stay up for the day. So she was going to need his truck again that afternoon, after school, after the talent show, to get the project. And Terry wouldn't go to the school just to pick up the science project and not pick up Kyron, right? So why would Kane continue to plan on going to the bus stop at 3.30 to meet him there if he knew Terry needed to go to the school to collect the science project and Kyron? I have a hard time wrapping my head around Kane being involved in this. I don't know what the motive would be for either one of these people to want to harm Kyron. The theory is that Terry was angry at Kane and did this to harm him. That's been floated, but it seems a little far-fetched. There might be a lot more going on beneath the surface that we just don't know about that triggered something in Terry. That still leaves me somewhat befuddled when it comes to Kane. Is it possible that this guy is just so wrapped up in his own life, too consumed by his own narcissism to care about anything except keeping himself happy no matter what? I have no idea what was going on or what happened. All I know is that neither one of them should have been walking to that bus stop that day. And they both knew it when they were doing it. They both knew that they were supposed to go to the school that afternoon, not to the bus stop. I don't believe that they thought Kyron was going to get off that bus. I think it was all part of the alibi. Maybe Terry was in charge of the whole thing. Maybe she led Kane down this way. Maybe Kane wasn't in the know. But the fact is, neither one of them has ever been made to explain why they did this when they knew Kyron was supposed to be performing and they were supposed to be there to support him. If Terry killed Kyron, she had to have left the school with him and got him and her sick child into the truck sometime around 8.45 that morning. Maybe she killed Kyron right away, perhaps in the school parking lot, perhaps a few minutes later in the parking lot at the first Fred Meyer. Unless somebody out there wants to accuse Terry of killing him while she's driving. If Kyron's dead, Terry must have concealed him somewhere in the truck then. If he was still alive, then maybe she left him sitting in the truck. No witnesses ever saw Kyron. The next place Terry went was a second Fred Meyer. Again, he's either dead inside the truck or he's sitting out there waiting for her. And again, nobody ever saw him. Terry runs into an acquaintance and is in no particular hurry if Kyron is dead in the vehicle. If that's actually what happened, if she just killed him and he's in the car, she never tipped her hand. The next place that Terry goes is the dry cleaners and the timeline begins to get a little choppy. If Kyron is dead, maybe Terry dumped his body somewhere between the Fred Meyer and the dry cleaner or between the dry cleaner and the craft store. Or maybe he is still alive and inside the truck. Once again, nobody notices Kyron, dead or alive. Then we arrive at the biggest gap in Terry's timeline, which begins sometime around 1.10 or so. That's about the time she left the Michaels Craft Store and ends when she checks into the gym at 11.39. This is the time that Terry claimed that she was driving around to comfort the baby. This is the time that most people believe Terry either disposed of an already dead Kyron or killed him and disposed of him. Maybe Terry got angry or frustrated and she did something to hurt Kyron in order to vent her frustrations. 
Maybe she hit him or abused him in a way where she was afraid that he would tell Cain. Maybe that was part of the reason why Terry had some resentment towards Cain. She's the stay-at-home mom, right? Cain has the job that keeps him busy and away from the home a lot, so that means most of the time Terry has to be the disciplinarian. Maybe Kyron complains to Cain, and Cain undermines Terry's authority, so Kyron thinks that he doesn't have to mind her. So maybe Terry spent part of that time that she was allegedly driving the baby around to also get rid of Kyron. But the problem is police were unable to find any evidence that any of that happened. Nobody saw Kyron with Terry after she left the school. Nobody saw him leave the school with her. The truck was searched and there was no evidence of any kind to indicate that anything violent happened inside of it. There were no bodily fluids, no blood, nothing. If Terry strangled him, she didn't have any kinds of marks on her arms that would have been indicative of Kyron fighting for his life. Maybe she plied Kyron with drugs and killed him. That theory has been floated. There are ways of killing a person without leaving evidence that a murder took place, but it's not that easy. If Kyron was dead in the truck, cadaver dogs would have been able to pick up on the scent inside the vehicle. I don't know if they had dogs sniff around the car or not. There's just not evidence that a murder took place. There's no crime scene. When it comes to the possibility of Dee Dee Spicer somehow helping Terry, there's no evidence that the women had been in contact with one another that morning. There's been a lot of speculation surrounding Savi Island, but it's been reported that even though Terry's phone pinged the tower near there, investigators have looked into it and are fairly certain that Terry's truck never went across the bridge to get onto that island. If police used Terry's cell phone to track her movements, you have to imagine that extensive searches were conducted in all of the places where her phone was tracked. The problem is police have no evidence to prove that somehow Terry found a way to kill Kyron to dispose of his body within a very slim window of time with nobody's help that they could prove for seemingly no reason or motive behind it at all, all the while with a sick toddler, running errands, picking up medications, dropping off dry cleaning, and then got her workout on and somehow managed to not leave a single shred of evidence anywhere to be found, no blood, no injuries, no indication in or on the truck that a crime ever occurred. As I've stated, to me, the single most compelling piece of evidence that Terry knew Kyron was dead was the fact that she failed to go back to the elementary school that afternoon. Her sitting at home after she left the gym at 12.40 and didn't go to the 1 p.m. talent show and then sat at home until she walked to the bus stop with Kane at 3.30 has convinced me that she knew he was dead. Maybe Kane was in the know too, and decided the best thing to do for him was to distance himself from Terry as the court of public opinion began to turn on her. He decided to join them in incessantly dragging her publicly, filing for divorce, obtaining a restraining order, having her forcibly removed from the home, taking their child from her, all in the name of throwing her under the bus in order to cover his own ass. While Terry is the primary person of interest in Kyron's case, the fact remains that police have never named her a suspect. The evidence isn't there. I believe the media circus surrounding Terry and the family feeding into that sorely distracted from the investigation. I really think a strong circumstantial case could have been built and a no-body prosecution could have taken place if law enforcement would have been allowed 
to do their job without all the irrelevant BS that everybody was throwing around. A case I point to is Sherry Papini. Talk about a case where nobody was blabbing to the media. Everybody was quiet. Law enforcement, the FBI, Sherry's family. Everyone kept it close to the vest and then boom, five years later, we have an arrest and a conviction that came out of nowhere. As soon as the search for Kyron was called off and the investigation turned criminal, the only thing that anybody needed to continue talking about to the media was Kyron. As much as inquiring minds wanted to know, me being one of them, trashing Terry only hurt the investigation. And look at us now, 12 years later, no Kyron, no suspect, no arrest. And to this day, even if by some chance remnants of Kyron's skeletal remains are found, the likelihood that anybody will ever be charged are probably pretty slim, just like they are now. I mentioned in the beginning that I'm not a fan of Kane Horman, and I've even floated the theory that he may have had knowledge about Kyron being missing ahead of everybody else. But really, I don't see a motive on his part other than the possibility that he may have been misguided in the beginning to try and protect Terry until all of the salacious stuff started getting reported in the media and then he turned on her just like everybody else did. Other than the possibility of initially trying to protect Terry, I see no motive for Kane having any further involvement in this. To this day, he continues to try to keep Kyron's name and face out there to continue to advocate for him until he figures out where Kyron's at. As long as his remains aren't found, then to Cain that means his son is out there, possibly with somebody else. The more they search and turn up nothing, the more Cain believes that. He has also extended his help in supporting other parents of other missing children. As for Desiree, she is still out there doing interviews. She contributed to a book that was released in 2020 called Boy Missing, The Search for Kyron Horman. The interesting thing is, is that she believes that the police and the district attorney were all ready to charge, arrest, and prosecute Terry, that the case was solid and that they had probable cause, but they pulled back because of the Casey Anthony case, and that that somehow changed the way missing children cases are prosecuted. I don't necessarily believe that. Kyron and Kaylee's cases were both sensationalized in the media for all the wrong reasons. That's what those cases have in common. And look at them today. Both cases are likely destined to remain mysterious and unsolved forever. If Kyron is alive, he would be 20 years old. There is an age progress picture of him that I posted on social media along with part one of this series that shows what he might look like today. He's been missing for 12 years and four months as of this recording. Information about Kyron can be called into the Monomah County Sheriff's Office tip line at 503-988-0560 or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 1-800-THE-LOST. Thank you all so much for listening to these episodes. 
Please come to Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and share your own thoughts, opinions, and theories about what you think most likely happened to Kyron. I gave you my opinions. You're free, of course, to always disagree with me, as you do. I'll be getting started on the Patreon bonus for the month of October after this, and I'm going to try to figure out what we're going to talk about next. All right. Thank you again. I'm your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams.